The following is a North Carolina Baptist resource. For more, visit ncbaptist.org. There'll be two books, apart from the scriptures, that I'll be pulling from today. Uh, I highly recommend uh, both books, but uh, one that I have found particularly helpful uh, also for myself and pastoring, and the name of the book is Toughest People to Love, How to Understand, Lead, and Love the Difficult People in Your Life, Including Yourself, uh, there at the bottom. Uh, And that's by Chuck DeGroote, but it's called Toughest People to Love, How to Understand, Lead, and Love the Difficult People in Your Life, Including Yourself. For obvious reasons, in light of the title, of this, uh, of this uh, uh, time that we have together, of this class uh, with uh, loving people where they are, uh, that's a, a book that I think that you will find very helpful as a pastor to become more aware of some of uh, the issues in your own life and how those issues transfer to your family, how those issues transfer to your congregation. And, uh, and furthermore, it helps you uh, for understand uh, people in your congregation at a, at a greater um with a greater awareness and how to lead and love them where they are. So again, I, I highly recommend that book. Uh, I think, in my opinion, every pastor should read that book. There's another book I'm going to recommend to you. Uh, this guy is not a Christian. Uh, to my knowledge, he's not. Uh, it's by David Brooks. Um, he is a op-ed writer for the New York Times. And this is a book called The Second Mountain. This is a New York Times bestseller. Uh, I recommend this book. I'm going to pull from it uh, in a few moments and read uh, a couple of paragraphs from it because I think it's going to set in context uh, where we are in our culture and how we think about things a lot of times. And then I want to bring Scripture to bear into our situation and culture in light of sin and in light of God's redemptive grace. Uh, But this is just a great book. Uh, He notes two mountains. The first mountain is the mountain of... uh, of, of achievement, success. Uh, again, he's a New York Times bestseller. He writes for the New York Times, and so he has uh, what we would consider a very successful career. Uh, but he lost a lot in the process, and he's going to talk about that in this book. And then the second mountain is his uh, what he calls the quest for the moral life. Now, again, I, I want to reiterate, I'm not saying that this man's a Christian. Uh, I, I don't want to go out there and go down that route. And so if you're looking for a Christian book, this is probably not the book that uh, you want to go to. But it is a book that I think you can understand uh, where culture is. And then furthermore, the second, ma- uh, the second mountain in light of what this man writes about is his moral path. Now, again, um, those of us who understand the gospel know that there is no moral path to Jesus. There is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to earn uh, God's righteousness, but this is something that he lays out, and it might be helpful for uh, you to understand as you deal with people who are very moral people, but yet people who uh, do not know and love Jesus Christ. So uh, I've been given the assignment of um, working through moving people from doing church to being church, subtitled, and this is where I want to really focus, is loving people where they are loving people where they are. If you'll recall the story in John chapter 6 where Jesus had fed the 5,000. He had uh, multiplied the bread. He had multiplied the fish and uh, demonstrated His infinite power uh, to the people. And, uh, and then uh, as He journeyed on, we see that many people, the Bible says, were seeking 
Jesus. And Jesus, uh, understanding uh, the human condition, uh, Jesus understood where they were, and Jesus, in love and in His grace, begins to lay out and expose why they were following Him. And He says, you're following Me because you ate and you were full. And so they were essentially following Jesus, not for who Jesus was. (laughs) They were following Him because they ate and they were full from the bread that He had multiplied. And that being said, Jesus met them where they were and exposed in their life why they were following Him. And then Jesus goes on and He talks about how He is the bread of life. And so Jesus lays out and He exposes that A, you're following Me because you ate and you were full, but B, if you really understood life, if you really understood what it means to live then you would know and love me for who I am. And that's why he later says um, that he is the bread of life. So, our calling is uh, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, God has set aside the church. He has saved us from sin by His grace. And He has called us to the Great Commission. He has called us to make disciples. He has called us to engage people where they are. And that's nothing new. If you look even back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve was not pursuing God when they had fallen, but God did what? God pursued them. Now, I think in our culture and in our time, uh, we obviously know that our problem is sin, ultimately, and that Jesus has a solution to that problem. But I want to read a little bit here from... um, from David Brooks's book, uh, The Second Mountain, and I want to just kind of lay out, uh, as he lays out, where I think we are as a culture and the kind of people that we are reaching, and even perhaps how God wants to minister to us today as we sometimes uh, deviate from the gospel. So he lays out in the introduction of why he has written this book. He says, I have written this book in part to remind myself of the kind of life I want to live. Those of us who are writers work out our stuff in public, even under the guise of pretending to write about someone else. In other words, we try to teach what it is that we really need to learn. My first mountain was an insanely lucky one. I achieved far more professional success than I ever expected to. But that climb turned me into a sort of person, aloof and vulnerable, and uncommunicative, at least when it came to my private life. I sidestepped the responsibilities of relationship. My ex-wife and I have an agreement that we don't talk about our marriage and divorce in public. But when I look back generally on the errors and failures and sins of my life, they tend to be failures of omission, failures to truly show up for the people that I should have been close to. They tend to be the sins of withdrawal, evasion, workaholism, conflict, avoidance, failure to emphasize, and a failure to express myself openly. I have two old and dear friends who live 250 miles from me, for example, and their side of the friendship has required immense forbearance and forgiveness. For all the times I have been too busy, 
too disorganized, too distant when they were in need or just available, I look at those dear friendships with a gratitude mixed with shame. And this pattern not being present to what I love because I prioritize time over people. Productivity over relationship is a recurring motive in my life. I don't know about you, but I'm reading that. I'm thinking, man, this is even me as a pastor. (laughs) He goes further and he says this. I was unplanted, lonely, humiliated. I love this word, scattered. I remember walking through that period in a state that resembled permanent dark drunkenness. My emotions were all on the surface. My playlist were all Irish break songs by Sinead O'Connor, some of you might get that, and Snow Patrol. I was throwing myself needily upon my friends in ways that are embarrassing now if I stop to remember them, which I try to. I was unattached, wondering what the rest of my life should be, confronting the problems of a 22-year-old with a mind of a 52-year-old. Now... He lays out some of his individual problems, but now he's going to move and say, I'm writing this kind of as a display of where I went wrong and what I'm learning, but also as a social critic of society and judging what he has observed and others. Now listen to what he says about society. He says, finally, I write this book as a response to the current historical moment. For six decades, the worship of the self has been the central preoccupation of our culture. Molding the self, investing in the self, expressing the self, capitalism, the meritocracy, and modern social science have normalized selfishness. They have made it seem that the only human motives that are real are the self-interested ones, the desire for money, status, and power. They silently spread the message that giving, care, and love are just icing on the cake of society. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Finally, listen to this. When a society is built around self-preoccupation, its members become separated from one another, divided and alienated. And that is what has happened to us. We are down in the valley... The rot we see in our politics is caused by rot in our moral and cultural foundations and the way we relate to one another and the way we see ourselves as separable from one another and the individualistic values that have become the water in which we swim. The first culture has proven insufficient. It always does. And so what Brooks is laying out here and what he has observed is that Our human nature in culture has manifested a sin of worshiping the self. In other words, we are preoccupied with ourselves. We labor for achievement, our achievement, and there's nothing wrong with success, uh, but there is something wrong with success and achievement if our identity is in our achievements and success. For Brooks, his achievement as a New York Times op-ed writer... Uh, as a multiple New York Times bestseller, uh, he had in his mind climbed the pinnacle of success and yet in the whole process had lost his family and was unable to relate to his children properly and felt isolated and lonely and crushed. 
And so I think, friends, that one of the first things that we need to understand is that the culture that we are trying to reach has the same problem that we have, namely we're selfish (laughs) and we need Jesus. And it manifests itself, I believe, in the ways that Brooks has characterized it manifesting itself. Um, I know for us, we live in one of the lost pockets in North Carolina. Uh, I've been talking to my church recently uh, in a three-mile radius from the school that is about a half a mile from our church. We have 65% of the people who are lost, uh, according to these statistics. And um, they, they don't know Jesus. They don't affiliate with the church. And I would say that as living there in the middle of that, I've observed two things. I've observed, A, that there are people that grew up in church, don't want to go to church because uh, in some ways their experiences in church have not always been the best. They have felt shamed into trying to do things and shamed to do A, B, C, and D, to be right with God. And in many cases, uh, with people that I have talked to, it's just been a lack of understanding of the gospel. And then there's a second group of people that are moving into Pilot Mountain, and it's becoming uh, one of the emerging groups, and that's the group of people that commute back and forth to Winston-Salem, and, um, and many of them don't go to church. And uh, in fact, we've just had two people move into our area uh, within the last month, and both families, uh, to my knowledge, doesn't attend anywhere and is not interested in attending anywhere. And so... Uh, what we do see, uh, for the most part, these people devoted to and how they use their time, etc., is they are devoted to themselves. They're devoted to their families. They're devoted to themselves. They're devoted to uh, having a nice home. They're devoted to careers. And they are devoted to climbing the ladder. And so we are asking ourselves how to meet these people where they are and how to love them with the gospel. And so what I want to do is just take a few moments and just kind of go through a theology of Sabbath rest. Now you say, what in the world does the Sabbath have to do with this? Now, first of all, I want to offer a caveat. Uh, Please do not leave here today saying that the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina had a guy speak and told me what I could do and not do on the Sabbath. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) This is not that kind of sermon. Uh, What I am going to try to do, however, is I'm going to try to uh, highlight this reality that people are laboring to find completeness. People are laboring to find meaning in life. People are laboring to try to find fulfillment in life. People are laboring to feel whole and complete. And the gospel is, is that Jesus, by His grace, is the only one that can make us whole and complete as we know Him. And so, uh, the Sabbath, I think the ultimate thing that the Sabbath is teaching is that we find our wholeness, we find our rest, we find our completeness as human beings that are creating the image of God by the rest that we have through the merited works of Jesus Christ and not the labors of our hand. Does that make sense? Now you can fall asleep. That's, that's, that's where we are. <laughs> All right, that being said, let's, uh, let's drive on now further. Now, um, let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 2. Look real quick at Genesis chapter 2. 
And we're going to look at God as a creator in the beginning who provides rest. Now we know that uh, in the book of Genesis we see that God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit did what? He spoke and created nature. He created the physical world, right? Uh, He created the physical world to be inhabited. And of course, He created animals to inhabit this world. But furthermore, what He did was He created man to live in the world. He created a man in His image who is to reflect the lordship and the rule of God over all things. And He called man to work the creation and to keep it uh, under His authority and under His glory. And then we see that God gave man a woman, right? And then they became a what? Society, right? Everybody see that? And so we see that this circle, this uh, series of circles here, is that God created nature, God created man to inhabit nature, and God created woman to live with man and both be image bearers living under the lordship to the glory of God in all things. Now, Uh, I want to just read here from Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished the work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that He had done. Uh, Chuck DeGroat notes this about the Sabbath rest here in Genesis chapter 2. He says the following. Um, He says, uh, A favorite Jewish scholar of mine, Jacob Neusser, writes that God's command to rest is, in essence, an invitation to return to Eden and all of its beauty, wholeness, and shalom. He further notes that for all the Christian chatter about keeping Sabbath, I suspect most of us don't know what it means at all. We may define rest as stopping, sleeping, relaxing, enjoying, and all of these are very good. Amen? (laughs) And they are very good. But we forget that we're literally incapable of rest if we're divided. Our inner divisions are what keep us from rest. Now, before we ask the question, how are we divided, we need to note that here in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, or or Genesis chapter 2 rather, what we see is a perfect harmony going on here. In fact, when God created the woman and uh, gave him to man, they were both relating to one another in peace and harmony as they were relating to whom? Ultimately, God. And so they saw themselves living under and with the, with the God of the Bible in all things. And so there was shalom, there was peace, there was harmony there. So all of this worked as it should, right? It wasn't broken. Man, individually, in his mind, will, and emotions, and desires, they were all in harmony with one another. I've got three children uh, getting that eight-year-old up out of bed to go to school on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, shoot, five days a week is difficult. His mind says, I know I've got to do this, but his desires and his affections, they're scattered. He doesn't, he doesn't what? I don't feel like it, Dad, but he knows that he has to. The Apostle Paul said, the things I do, 
are not the things are the things that I do. What does he say? Finish it up. The things that I do are not the things that I want to do. Who shall deliver me from this scattered self? Who shall deliver me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ our Lord. And so um, our mind, will, infections before the fall, all of it was in perfect harmony with one another. So that means that the man and the woman, emotionally and uh, intellectually, uh, everything was in harmony there. Uh, things, they were in harmony with nature. So they worked the ground and, as they walk with God in the cool of the day in nature. But how did we become divided? Well, Genesis chapter 3 tells us. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 we know that God had commanded man not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for He promised what? On the day that He would do it, He would what? He would die. Now, uh, let me just read verse 7 here. Uh, As man and woman had eaten the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's see what began to happen to them after they disobeyed God. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and get this, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And then he said, He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, and he begins to curse the woman, he begins to curse the man, and uh, of course gives us the seed promise of the coming of Jesus Christ. So, what was once a paradise... What was once a world of peace and harmony, because God was center, man desired to be the center, and in so doing, in breaking the authority of God, and trying to become wise in his own authority, and believing the lie of Satan, man ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and became naked, and afraid, and ashamed." And the Bible tells us that he took fig leaves and tried to cover himself. Now, I think that this is a reality for all of us. Uh, When we sin, we want to hide, right? Or we try to justify it. Uh, And man, ministry is a great way to try to hide sin, is it not, friends? And uh, we try to justify it. Uh, We're fearful. We feel ashamed. Uh, We feel the weight of guilt on us. And we see God here meeting Adam and Eve where they are. They're trying to hide from God, and God in His grace comes to them. And though there are consequences that He told them would happen if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, He also gave them the seed promise of the gospel with Jesus Christ in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So He was a gracious God that had even... Uh, at that time had promised that there would be one that would come that would crush the head of the serpent, though the serpent would strike his heel. Now, if you reflect a few moments ago when I was reading uh, David Brooks, uh, one of the um, words or or uh, some of the terminology that he used in describing himself and describing our culture today is a preoccupation with self, right? 
and becoming alienated from others. So he had in his mind and in his idea of what he wanted to labor to achieve, to feel worth and to get meaning in life, being a famous writer, and he placed himself in the middle, as we all do with our own dreams and aspirations. We have these things in our head that we want to do, that we falsely believe will give us meaning and worth and value and significance. And we labor, even at the cost of creation, even at the cost of our relationships with other people, we labor to be the king of our lives to where we can achieve some kind of worth. That's in the church. That's with me as a pastor. Some, I mean, you know, I'll just be honest. Sometimes uh, I, I, my worth is derived from, are they going to come up and tell me good sermon this morning? <laughs> and I like to cover that up and say, I don't need your affirmation, but there's a part of me in my soul due to my fallen nature that longs for that affirmation. So it's just not people out there that God wants to meet where they are. (laughs) It's people, it's the church. And so we are divided, friends. We are separated. We are scattered. Augustine called it in his um, The City of God a disordered love because we have in our minds placed ourselves as the center and removed God from it we have a disordered love and we're scattered you don't believe me uh, just uh, follow me with my phone sometimes I can be focused 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 I gotta check my phone very scattered multitasking very scattered in my thinking overachiever I've got to do this. I've got to do this. My list of tasks, I'm not going to feel complete. I'm not going to get rest until I what? I complete the task. Just real quick, you can rest and then work because you are already at rest with Jesus Christ through what He's done. Now, let's go that direction. So, human beings are divided after the fall. Now, uh, what I want to do is just uh, point to the Sabbath as the Sabbath ultimately points to Jesus Christ. And so I want to just kind of lay out briefly a theology of the Sabbath, and I want to look at three passages. Uh, First of all, I want to demonstrate that uh, the Sabbath has been given so that we remember that God is our Redeemer. God is our Redeemer. In the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 8, Jesus, or God, lays out uh, to Uh, Moses, the fourth commandment, and he says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. So laboring is good, right? (laughs) Nothing wrong with work. Laboring is good. So six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within the gates. Now, this is key to understanding this particular commandment in Exodus 20. He says, For in six days the Lord God made heaven and earth and sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so um, the idea here, and one of the things that is emphasized in this particular passage, is the idea of remembering 
recalling in light of your labors, you, you have tasks throughout the week, and in light of those labors, you take a break from the ordinary day and you remember God as your Creator. And so um, this particular passage, uh, of one theologian I'd like to read after, uh, he notes this, that externally, this particular commandment in the book of Exodus is the idea of ceasing from the ordinary task to remember that God is really the one that keeps the world together and not you. Now, uh, the second verse is in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see again uh, God giving the Ten Commandments to uh, Moses. It's really the same account, but there's going to be a different variant here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. So in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, the Bible says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Now here we go, and here's, here's the variant, here's the emphasis here. That he gives. Remember, the first one was the idea of God as creator. Now we're going to see God as redeemer. In verse 15, the Bible says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. And so, what's being emphasized here is to remember that it is your covenant God who gave a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even told Abraham that you were going to be in Egypt for 400 years, and it was not by your power, it was not by your army, it was not by your labor that you delivered yourself out of Egypt, Rather, it was the mighty hand of God that did it. And so your redemption, your deliverance, is the work of God and not the labor of your hands. Now, how does this all relate to Jesus? Well, the book of Hebrews definitely relates this to Jesus. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Now, again... Uh, I am where the Baptist faith and message is on this. Uh, the Lord's Day, you, you live it out how you believe under your conscience before God. That's not what I'm getting at here. So again, I just want to emphasize here, I'm not telling you you can't go out to eat in our place as Mountain View Restaurant. Our people go to Mountain View. I, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that the Sabbath is not about what you do and don't do. The Sabbath is really about Jesus and what He's done. And that's what's going to be highlighted here in Hebrews chapter 4. The, uh, these Jewish folks were being tempted. Uh, they were uh, being coerced and manipulated by some Judaizers to try to get them to fall back into the teachings of Judaism, whereby they merit God's righteousness by the works of the law and not by the works of Jesus Christ. And so uh, he says here in Hebrews chapter 4, Warning them against unbelief, he says, actually, let me begin in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16. He says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, 
led by Moses, and with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it is to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed do what? Enter that rest. As he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he somewhere has spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now, let me just go down in verse 8 for the sake of time here. Verse 8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, talking about the children of Israel and going into the promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest, get this, has also rested his works from his works as God did. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the joint of the soul and the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed, and must give, um, must give uh, account to God. Now, so what's going on here is Paul, or whoever you believe the author of Hebrews is, uh, is calling uh, his people to uh, believe and to trust and receive the grace of Jesus, to hold fast their confession. And that's why he goes on in chapter 5, verse, uh, verse 1, on down and talking about Jesus as our high priest. And so our resting ultimately is ceasing from our labors as we are dependent upon the all-sufficiency of Christ and His works by His merits on the cross and in His resurrection to save us from sin. In other words, the Sabbath rest, as Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, is the idea that Jesus, as Creator, not only created us, but also redeems us, and He is the meaning of life, and He is the one that makes our lives complete. You see that? So we're either working, we're either working to gain worth, to gain significance, we're leading to gain worth and gain significance. And friends, if that's why you're leading, and I, I've, I've tried that before, and, and man, that can make you bitter when people don't follow you. Because your worth then becomes, is people following me or not? You are free to lead, and if even people don't follow you, you can labor to lead, friend, because your labor does not merit your standing before God does. The labor of Jesus on the cross does. You are approved, you are accepted, you are totally loved. And He knows all about you. He knows what you hide and saved you. <laughs> and so your worth and your significance is not in your work, although it is ordained of God. 
Your worth and significance is in Christ. And our neighbors, our churches, and even we as pastors and leaders, the work of God is that we believe in Jesus. (laughs) So, I would say we're all kind of like David Brooks. We're all scattered. We're all preoccupied with self. And we even sometimes make it look good by ministry. <laughs> and yet God, he, he sees all of that and He knows all about it and yet loves us. Now, so let's look now at a brief case study on how Jesus loved someone where they were. Turn with me now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. I'm sorry, John, chapter 5. Let's look now at Jesus loving someone where they are. John, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five Ruth colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, Do you want to be healed? So the context is there's a man who has been an invalid for 38 years. This man, we're going to find out, he's in a hopeless state. He's tried to get up and he's tried to have others pick him up and take him to this pool. And so Jesus perceives and sees that he has been there the longest. Jesus encounters him, comes to him where he's at in life, and says to him the following. After Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. And so Jesus displays His power here to this man who had become hopeless. Uh, His desire was to be healed. Uh, as the water was stirred up, and there, there are various views of, of the significance of that, and I'm not going to go into that because it's not really the main point of the story. But the main point of the story is that the man had been there for a long time, and he was hopeless. And so he had just kind of, he's somewhat existing there. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the man lays out his story. And then Jesus says to him, take up your bed and walk. And the man took up his bed and walked. Now, listen to this, verse 8. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So, you know, they're caught in all the, what do I do, what do I don't do on the Sabbath and all that, and they forgot the meaning of the Sabbath. The meaning of the Sabbath was about Jesus. It was about Jesus, it was about rest, it was about rest in Jesus. And this is what Jesus is going to highlight. 
He said, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who has been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn. As there was a crowd in the place, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was, the, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. So what Jesus does is He heals this man physically. He demonstrates His power over creation. He demonstrates His power over physical nature by speaking His words, by working through His words, the word of His power. And this man picks up his bed and begins to walk. But then Jesus comes to him and says, there's a greater issue in your soul that needs to be dealt with. The meaning and the purpose of your life is not ultimately that you are healed physically, although that's a good thing. The meaning and purpose of your life is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, and ultimately believe that Jesus, the one who I am, is the one who healed you and made you well. Therefore, go and sin no more. So he kind of lays out the meaning of life for this man. And the meaning of life is ultimately a life that knows and loves and enjoys and trusts this Jesus who later on in chapter 6 we see is the bread of life. And in fact goes further and says, if you do not eat of my body and if you do not drink my blood, then you can have no life. In other words, friends, the meaning of life is not what we labor to achieve. The meaning of our life is knowing Jesus. Does that make sense? So meeting people where they are, I'm going to wrap it up with this. Meeting people where they are is understanding that we are all laboring, we are all working for some idol in our lives. We have erected something up above the living God of the Bible and we build our lives around that thing and it can be even good things. It can be family, it can be church, it can be your vocation, it can be a number of things. And we find our worth from these things. This is your neighbor. These are your co-workers. These are people that are around you. We, by human nature, because God's put it in us, we desire to be satisfied. We desire to be whole. We desire to be complete. Our problem is, is that we look for our wholeness and our completion in everything else but God. And so meeting people where they are is understanding and dissecting what are they living for? What are they ultimately living for in their life? What is that first commandment idol in their life that they build their lives around? And how can I magnify the worth of Jesus as He has revealed Himself in Scripture to these people so that they will see the vanity of laboring and living for food that perishes? too simple, isn't it? (laughs) 
to conclude, Jesus is the meaning of our life. And our world, our neighbor, friends and family, we all labor for food that perishes. And isn't it awesome that we have a God who has met us, even when we weren't looking for Him, met us where we are, laboring for the food that perishes, and redeemed us and saved us from laboring for that food that perishes, and has saved us to love and enjoy Him and make much of Him both now and for all eternity. And that our worth and our value, our identity and everything is found in Christ. The challenge and the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in my soul is daily sanctifying me and calling me back to believe the promise of the gospel that God loves and saves sinners, of which I am. So there are people, there are neighbors, there are friends that are living and laboring. And God is sending you to them to magnify the worth of Jesus Christ and how He restores the soul.